Well, good afternoon, and I want to thank Dr. Keithley for inviting me to come and speak today. It's a pleasure to be here, and just think how cold it would be if we didn't have global warming. <laughs> <clears throat> well, today I want to talk to you about some topics that you may or may not encounter every day. Uh, these are things that I work on every day. Marriage, life, religious liberty. Those are the issues that our organization addresses, and we've been doing that for some time. I wanted to start out and uh, just give you a little idea about how our organization started. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom for 18 years and uh, found my sweet spot, so to speak, when I went back to work. My youngest child was in high school and began lobbying at the General Assembly on these issues. And um, through, that, through that experience, um, the Lord gave me a calling to work on protecting traditional marriage in North Carolina. And I led an effort uh, with another organization to get the North Carolina Marriage Amendment passed in 2009. We were unsuccessful then. And um, so then I began doing some other things, working uh, in political capacities and in 2010 it became clear to me that because of the election that year we might be able to get a marriage amendment passed in North Carolina. Up to that point as a lobbyist I had just been beating my head against a wall because we did not have the right people in office to vote on these issues of marriage life and religious liberty and it was frustrating. So in 2011 we started the North Carolina Values Coalition and the primary task that year was to get the marriage amendment passed. And we started in February and it took us until September to get the bill through a Republican legislature that would put the marriage amendment on the ballot that year. And in 2012 we worked as the uh, chairperson of the Vote for Marriage campaign that passed the marriage amendment on, on the May ballot that year. So um, this is a picture of my husband and I and my little grandson. His name is Franklin. And Franklin is a great motivator for me because I see the culture falling apart. And I think about what will it be like for Franklin when he is 20, when he's 30 or even 40. And that motivates me. But more than that is my relationship with the Lord. That motivates me because I want to protect his values in our culture. I do not believe that politics is the way to save the culture. I want to make that clear. I think that the only way to save the culture is through Jesus Christ. And, um, but, but the Lord has given us the ability to live in a culture in which we must pass laws that help advance his kingdom. And so if we're disconnected as Christians, if we don't engage in the culture through the political process, then we are letting the culture be left to those who will fill that gap. And that is why we started the North Carolina Values Coalition. So um, we exist, as Dr. Keithley said, to create a culture in which human life is valued, marriage and families flourish, and religious liberty thrives. And we do this two ways, by getting those who share our values elected to office, and then by asking them to pass public policies that advance our values once they're elected. And so last year we worked really hard in the 2014 election to help get Tom Tillis into the U.S. Senate. And um, we had another candidate we really liked in the primary, Mark Harris, who is uh, a good friend of mine. 
and a leader in, in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention here in the state. But when Tom Tillis won the primary, it was clear to me that we needed to get my, behind him and support him because he had actually brought the marriage amendment to a vote in the House and helped us get the votes to get it on the ballot, but he also passed some major pro-life legislation as Speaker of the House. And so Tom Tillis has a long record that we can count on as a pro-life, pro-marriage conservative. Now, I want to talk to you about the issue of marriage. And I am using this as a way to just give you information about what's going on out there because my sense from talking to my son-in-law, Chad, is that you might be in a little bit of a bubble here. <laughs> that you might be, you might have your heads in books a lot and you may not know a lot about what is going on in the political world. So I'm gonna try and uh, raise some issues here that might make you think about some things. So in North Carolina, you know, we now have same-sex marriage. In spite of passing the marriage amendment two years ago and having 61% of the voters pass that, and I just wanted to review with you how that's happened. Because a lot of people I meet say, how did this happen? I thought we voted. Didn't we vote on this? Well, here's how it happened. So in July of last year, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which sits in Richmond, took up a case called Bostick versus Schaefer. This was a case that found Virginia's marriage amendment unconstitutional. And the case had already been decided by the lower federal courts, and this was the appeal to the Fourth Circuit. In the uh, decision handed down by those two gentlemen you see on your screen, those are the two judges that voted to strike down Virginia's marriage amendment, they found a fundamental right to marry in the 14th Amendment of our U.S. Constitution that encompasses same-sex marriage. Now that's news because I don't think the the drafters of the 14th Amendment ever contemplated that it would be used to validate, legalize, and celebrate same-sex marriages. And yet the Fourth Circuit and many other circuits around the country have found that. They also said the Supreme Court has demonstrated that the right to marry is an expansive liberty interest that may stretch to accommodate changing societal norms. Now that should scare all of us. Because what they're saying here is that today they're legalizing same-sex marriage. Tomorrow they might be legalizing a thruple. Have you ever heard of a thruple? It's three people in a marriage instead of two. Um, in New York, we currently have a father and daughter who want to get married. And the state of New York is going to allow that. Now, this, this expansive liberty interest is going to grow. This is not going to stop with same-sex marriage. And that's why it's important for us as Christians to be involved in the culture, especially in the political world. So in North Carolina, we had four lawsuits filed to strike down our marriage amendment. Uh, you can see the three names of the cases, those three. I'm going to show you a fourth one in a minute. But they were filed in the federal district courts in Greensboro and Charlotte. This case, the fourth case, was the only case in the country that has been filed by the denomination of a church. This is the General Synod of the United Church of Christ. Now, this is not the main branch of the Church of Christ. It's sort of a subsidiary, smaller branch. But the fact is that they have filed suit to overturn God's definition of marriage. And they succeeded in North Carolina. So they claimed in their lawsuit that the marriage laws and the marriage amendment in North Carolina violated their free exercise of religion. Now, 
I don't know if that bothers you, but it, it really bothers me because they have fundamentally changed the definition of free exercise of religion. Um, this is not a violation of their free exercise. This is not the government telling them that they have to do something. It is the government recognizing the God-given definition of marriage that we get in Genesis. So they also wanted to seek to perform same-sex marriages in their churches. Um, on October 6th, the Supreme Court refused to grant review to the Fourth Circuit's decision in that Bostick case that struck down the Virginia Marriage Amendment. They also refused to grant review in some other cases around the country, but the one that affected us was this one. So when the Supreme Court decided not to review that case, it had the impact of making the lower court's decision final on the Virginia Marriage Amendment, and it became precedent in the Fourth Circuit where we're located. So, within five days, two federal judges in North Carolina had ruled our state marriage amendment unconstitutional, and they cited to this Fourth Circuit opinion in Bostick. So, they're citing to the Fourth Circuit as precedent. And then, an hour after that, same-sex marriages were being performed in the state of North Carolina. Now, that's a picture of the first same-sex marriage performed in the state. I watched it on WREL at 6 o'clock that Friday evening. And I was, I was, I, I just prayed for our state and our nation because it was shocking to see it. But also the Register of Deeds in Wake County had held her office open late that evening so she could perform same-sex marriages. And now what we have in the country is we have 37 states in the District of Columbia where same-sex marriage is legal. We have gone in literally a year from having a majority of states where same-sex marriage was not legal to having a majority of states where it is now legal. And if you look at the left-hand side of the screen up there, you can see that nine states have done this through their state legislatures. And then on the bottom right-hand side, you can see only three states have done it by popular vote. Everywhere this has been put put to a vote of the people except those three states, the people have voted to recognize God's definition of marriage. On the right-hand side, um, you can see that it's been forced on 25 states by courts, mostly federal courts, but some of them state courts. So we have this judicial oligarchy going on. We have judges telling us that whatever the voters decided in the state is not right, that it doesn't comport with the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And in the federal courts, we've now had four circuits rule on state marriage amendments that have said these marriage amendments are unconstitutional. So it's not just the Fourth Circuit, but the Seventh, Ninth, and Tenth Circuits as well have ruled that the, uh, the ability of states to pass a marriage amendment uh, is, is unconstitutional, that states, states have passed uh, marriage amendments that violate the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, that there is a fundamental right to same-sex marriage in our Constitution. Only the Sixth Circuit has upheld a marriage amendment. The Sixth Circuit is Kentucky, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, uh, there's another state, there are four states, but uh, those states' marriage amendments were upheld. So this has created what we call in the legal world a split circuit where the Supreme Court will have to hear 
one of these cases, and indeed they just took up the Sixth Circuit case, and the briefs are due this week in the U.S. Supreme Court. The oral arguments will be held in April, and by June we'll have a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court on whether there's a, a right to same-sex marriage in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, whether states can pass laws that that recognize that marriage is only between one man and one woman, and whether states have to recognize same-sex marriages from out of state. So by June this year, we'll have that decision. Now, I would implore you to pray for the Supreme Court, because this is going to, this is going to come down to Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy wrote the decision in the Windsor case, which struck down the federal uh, definition of marriage, the federal DOMA section 3, which defined marriage for federal purposes, and this will come down to his vote. Justice Kennedy, in that decision striking down the federal definition of marriage, stated that it is not up to the federal government to tip the scales in favor of their definition of marriage. And in that case, he was ruling on a, a case from New York where a lesbian couple, where same-sex marriage was legal, were contesting uh, the laws of New York. And so when it came to the, to the Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy recognized that it has always been the purview of the states to define marriage and family policy for themselves, that this is not a matter of federal law. And so he, he was stating in this opinion that the federal government's definition of marriage, which was one man and one woman, could not be imposed on the state of New York where they had legalized same-sex marriage. Now, what we hope is that when a, this case from the Sixth Circuit gets up to the court in April, that he will agree with what he wrote before, that the federal government cannot tip the scales in favor of its definition of same-sex marriage in a state like North Carolina and other states around the country that have defined marriage as one man and one woman. We'll see. So, I wanted to move into this topic of religious liberty. And this is becoming quite an important topic right now, largely because we've had same-sex marriage imposed on these 27 states by federal courts. And um, let's just go through some of this. So in North Carolina, we actually have a very strong provision in our state constitution. <coughs> Article 1, Section 13, it's titled Religious Liberty of All Things. And it says, all persons have a natural and inalienable right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own consciences. And no human authority shall, in any case whatever, control or interfere with the rights of conscience. That comes from our original state constitution written in 1776. We also, as you know, have the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So you would think that we have enough constitutional protection for religious freedom, wouldn't you? Well, this is proving not to be the case. So one of the main threats to religious liberty right now is what we call a SOGI, a sexual orientation and gender identity non-discrimination law. These are being passed and have been passed all over the country in different states, in different cities. Up to this point, up until this year, we have not had any in North Carolina. We don't have one at the state level. We don't have a law at the state level that would protect people on the basis of their sexual orientation or their gender identity 
in, uh, in non-discrimination laws. However, about a month ago, the city of Greensboro passed one of these as a local ordinance and it impacts only housing. So it would apply to apartment buildings, hotels, motels, bed and breakfast, um, rental homes, homes for sale. That's the arena in which theirs applies. So you cannot discriminate in any of those areas in, on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Charlotte is contemplating one, and this is what um, we have been devoting all of our work to in the last two weeks. Charlotte is voting on one on March the 2nd that would add these terms, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression to their non-discrimination laws in the areas of public accommodations. So um, public accommodations are basically anything, any business, any organization, any building, anything in society that serves the public. So it would include retail stores, schools, um, athletic facilities like a gym if you belong to a gym. It includes the Charlotte Hornets Stadium, all of these things. Almost anything you can think of that is open to the public is a public accommodation. And that's what this law would apply to. And that's why it's called a bathroom bill because where this has been passed in other states, it makes available to a man who identifies as a woman the legal right to go into a women's bathroom and a women's locker room and a women's shower. And in Olympia, Washington, where they have a law similar to the one they're trying to pass in Charlotte, the, um, the local college there has a, a, a locker room and there is a man who has been frequenting this women's locker room even though there's a children's swim club that uses the locker room. And, People have complained that girls as young as six years old have been exposed by this man, and yet the college can do nothing. And that's what these laws do. So it, but this not only impacts bathrooms, it will impact businesses that contract with the city of Charlotte, for instance. So any, and I, I don't know how many of you are aware, but the largest Coca-Cola bottling company in the nation is in Charlotte. It's called uh, Coca-Cola Consolidated. And when you walk in their front door, their mission statement on their front wall, right there when you walk in, everybody sees it. It says to glorify God in everything we do. So Coca-Cola has contracts with the city of Charlotte to supply concessions at all of their athletic facilities. Now what are they going to do? They're going to have to either let go of these city contracts or they're going to have to have an internal company policy that protects homosexuals and transgendered individuals, even though it violates their faith. And this is the big issue, is violating their faith. The other issue is it violates their freedom of association and their freedom of speech. So um, all the lawsuits that we've seen across the country, cake bakers, florists, photographers, these are occurring because of these SOGIs. Because SOGIs have been passed, then couples who, um, and frequently they target Christian business owners, they will come and ask for them to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, and they don't have the ability to say no uh, and be honest about it anyway. So this is coming to every city in North Carolina, by the way. The Human Rights Campaign, the largest gay and lesbian activist group in the country, 
and Equality North Carolina, the, the local one here in the state, have both said publicly that they intend to bring this to every city in North Carolina. So if we can stop it in Charlotte, we can at least draw a line in the sand, and that's what we're hoping to do. So we've started this online petition called Don't Do It Charlotte. We're having a rally in Charlotte on March the 2nd, and we have a big letter writing campaign going on right now to city council <coughs> members there. So if you feel led to go to don'tdoitcharlotte.com, you can sign our petition and send a letter at one time to all 11 members of the Charlotte City Council. <clears throat> so let's look at some things that have happened as results of sexual orientation and gender uh, non-discrimination laws. This is Elaine Photography in New Mexico. She was found guilty of violating the state's human rights uh, commission's laws she discriminated against a lesbian couple when she politely declined to bake a wedding cake for their same-sex wedding. This is um, a sweet couple in Oregon who baked cakes. They, found, they were found guilty last week by the state of Oregon. They could be fined up to $150,000. This is a magistrate in North Carolina who got fired because he has a religious objection to performing a same-sex wedding. He filed suit just last week in federal court. Other examples are the Hitch and Post Wedding Chapel in, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. This couple, who are both pastors, were told by the city they had to perform same-sex marriages or go to jail. Uh, Baronel Stutzman in the, in the state of Washington, a florist who has served homosexuals for years in her flower shop, declined a same-sex wedding, and she's embroiled in a big lawsuit right now. And you heard about this one, I'm sure, the Atlanta fire chief who got fired because he wrote a book for his men's Bible study group where he talked about sexual ethics in the biblical view. So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed at the federal level in 1993, and it says that state action cannot burden a person's right to exercise their religion unless it demonstrates that applying the burden is essential to further a compelling governmental interest and is the least restrictive means. The federal RIFRA does not apply to the states and we do not have one in North Carolina. So this, is, this was the law that was the basis for the Hobby Lobby decision that, that said that Hobby Lobby as a corporation did not have to provide health insurance to its employees that covered abortion-inducing drugs. So in North Carolina, we are going to be trying to pass a RIFRA this year. And we are going to try and guarantee that we have rights in North Carolina to practice our religion that cannot be overridden by a sexual orientation and gender identity bill. We also have another bill that we're pushing this year that uh, Senator Phil Berger filed to protect those magistrates who got fired from their jobs. A, for not performing same-sex weddings. And then we're hoping to have some sort of statewide solution to these local ordinances that, um, that protect sexual orientation and gender identity. Finally, I wanted to just let you know about the sanctity of life. Um, you probably knew this, but 53 million unborn children have been killed as a result of abortion since it was legalized in 1973. North Carolina was the second state in the country to legalize abortion even before Roe versus Wade. So we have a statute on the books now that legalized it. Late-term abortions are still 
allowed in North Carolina. We have a 20-week ban on abortions, but you can get one very easily if you just claim it, it will hurt your health. And the health exception is a big gaping hole in our 20-week abortion ban. Also, minors seeking abortions can still do so without a parent's consent. All they have to do is go to a judge in North Carolina and get a court order to have an abortion. So, as a parent, you may never even know about your daughter's abortion. And abortion clinics are poorly regulated. Most of them are only inspected once every three to five years, and they get to operate under lower standards of care than other outpatient surgical centers. So, in, in North Carolina, I just want to show you the impact of some of the work that we do. We have had a huge downturn in the number of abortions in the last three years. In 2010, we had 30,000, almost 31,000 abortions in the state. Last, in 2013, we had 22,000. That's a drop of 8,000 unborn children that are alive today. It's a 26% decrease over three years. And what accounts for it is the legislative reforms that we've been able to get through the legislature. First, in 2011, we passed the Woman's Right to Know Bill, which mandates a 24-hour waiting period before a woman has an abortion. And it also requires that she be presented with information that shows her all the risks associated with abortion. We call that informed consent. Um, the probable gestational age of the baby didn't have to be revealed to the woman before she got an abortion previous to this law. And now the new law requires that the doctor give her the opportunity to see her unborn child on the ultrasound screen and describe to her what he's seeing. Did you know that 70% of women, when they see the fingers and the toes and the eyes and the heartbeat of their child change their minds about having an abortion? That's why Planned Parenthood filed suit against that provision in the law and has held it up. The Fourth Circuit found it unconstitutional. So that's going all the way up to the Supreme Court. But we've made this drastic reduction even without that provision of the law. So in 2013, we passed these reforms. We prohibited sex-selective abortions, which go on in China all the time. We prohibited uh, webcam abortions where a doctor can sit in his office in Atlanta and talk to a patient over a webcam in Charlotte and dispense the RU486 drug. We uh, are requiring that abortion doctors be present for the entire abortion, so you can't do these uh, webcam abortions. We expanded conscience rights to all healthcare workers. This was important for pharmacists who might not want to dispense the RU486 drug. And then we required a modernization of the abortion clinic rules. Now that is still in the process and we have filed objections to the rules that DHHS came out with. We hope to make an impact on that. It looks like we will through legislation, not through the rulemaking process. But it also prohibited taxpayer funding of abortion through the Affordable Care Act or through local and city health plans. So this year at the federal level, we're working on the unborn, uh, the Pain Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. There's information on your tables if you're interested in that. But this is a federal bill that would ban abortions after 20 weeks when babies can feel pain. At the state level, we are working on um, a measure that would fix some of these abortion clinic rules. 
We would require annual inspections, require that the abortionist has to be a licensed OBGYN. Right now it could be a podiatrist. We were requiring hospital transfer agreements from abortion clinics, the reporting of the rape of minors, which is not being done. Abortion clinics all the time just turn their head when a minor comes in. And then reporting methods for gestational age, so that if a doctor performs abortion after the 16th week of pregnancy, he must report how he determined the gestational age. Believe it or not, we have abortion doctors who lie about that all the time. Um, the other thing that we're including in our pro-life legislation this year is a 72-hour waiting period instead of a 24-hour. And then making sure that taxpayer dollars don't pay for abortions. We have some um, end-arounds that have been going on in our state hospitals. So the goal with our pro-life legislation is to continue to reduce the number of abortions every year that we can until abortion is unthinkable. And yesterday I got to meet with the chief of staff for the governor and the governor has not been especially friendly on these issues, especially the abortion issue. He threatened to veto our big bill in 2013. And um, I was so thankful that God gave me the opportunity to sit across the table from this man and shake my fist and say, we are going to bring a big abortion bill to you every year because it's the right thing to do. And we don't want a political response. We want him to do the right thing. So that is what we're going to continue doing every year, especially when we have majorities in the legislature who agree with us. The legislature is filled with a lot of very strong Christian men and women. They care deeply about doing the right thing. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about, is we need help supporting these people to do the right thing. Sometimes when they only hear from the opposition, they start thinking, well, I wonder if I am doing the right thing because I haven't gotten any phone calls or emails from people who support this bill. I'm just getting 6,000 a day from people who oppose it. So if we as Christians are not supporting people when they're in elected office doing the right thing, then we deserve what we get. And that's what we've gotten at the city level where we have cities like Charlotte and Greensboro passing these bizarre laws. So I'm asking you today, if you have extra time, or even if you don't, if you could write letters emails, make phone calls, come to a rally, come to a legislative hearing at the legislature. That would be a good opportunity for you to experience what goes on down there. Um, Grayson Greco, who is my field director in the back of the room, has some clipboards and we'd love to have you sign up to be on our rapid response team. We, um, because we're in Raleigh or, you know, this is Wake Forest, I guess, technically, we are close to the legislature. So you have a prime opportunity that most people in the state don't. You could go down for a hearing. Sometimes when I'm down there, last, last general session, Planned Parenthood would line the upper gallery of the legislature in pink t-shirts and they'd hold up signs that say, shame on you. And um, our folks weren't there. So we have got to make a showing during legislative season to help these good people who have elect, been elected to office do the right thing and to show them that we support what they're doing. So um, just wanted to leave you with this thought from Noah Webster, 
who said, Our destruction, if it come at all, will be from the in inattention of the people to the concerns of their government, from the carelessness and negligence. So don't let carelessness and negligence end up making our society a, a poor place for our children and our grandchildren to grow up. Tammy, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we have a few minutes just for a couple of questions. I'm going to start off the questions. Uh, you, you made it clear that even though you have addressed North Carolina issues, <clears throat> that uh, because of the uh, federal circuit courts, what happens like in Virginia affects us. Would you speak uh, to, to, to explain to us, that, to your best of your ability, what is going on with Judge Roy Moore in Alabama? And perhaps you might even want to speak uh, to some of the controversy about how Southern Baptists have responded, uh, like like uh, Dr. Rusmore's uh, response, and give give us enlighten us on that. Well, if you uh, if you've been paying attention in the last two weeks, Alabama is the last the latest state to have their marriage amendment ruled unconstitutional by a federal judge, and rather than just taking it on the chin. Judge Roy Moore, who is the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, ordered all of the, uh, the figures, and I can't remember what they call them there. In North Carolina, you would, it would be a register of deeds that actually issues marriage licenses. He ordered them not to issue same-sex marriage licenses. And so then we had this back and forth between the federal judge and the state judge, and Judge Roy Moore has taken the position that the, uh, until there's a final ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court that a federal district court judge does not have the authority to strike down an entire state's marriage amendment. And Dr. Russell Moore, while I greatly admire him and respect him on almost everything, I, he and I disagree on this. He, uh, he has chastised uh, Justice Moore for this, saying that a state judge does not have the authority to to um, go against a federal judge and that he's, he's overstepping his boundaries and that he should resign from office or these, these local officials who issue marriage licenses should resign from office rather than, than fight this from within as an as a elected official. And um, I, I disagree with that. I had hoped for a man of courage like that in North Carolina who would stand up to the federal judges here and say the people here voted by 61% to pass a marriage amendment and yet we could not find a man of courage here to do that. Even though our organization met numerous times with the governor and the attorney general, we could not find a man to do it. And so what Judge Roy Moore has done is he has asserted the doctrine of federalism which says that states, uh, states have the authority and power to do everything that's not specifically granted to the federal government by the Constitution. So in this instance, marriage has always been up to the states, and Judge Moore is, is relying on that legal precedent, on that doctrine of federalism. And these federal judges who have struck down marriage amendments at best only have authority to strike it down in their judicial district, not throughout the entire state. So um, I would have to say I agree with Justice Roy Moore, and I think he's been a very courageous man. I hope we have other judges across the country who will do it. He's been the first one, though, and we've had 27 states who've, who've had their marriage amendments struck down by judges. Okay. Other question. 
Um, <clears throat> I'm going to repeat your question, so it'll be recorded. Yes. So I'm just interested in the Sixth Circuit um, that the Supreme Court's taking up right now. You mentioned that it comes down to Kennedy, but what about Roberts? Because you know he was put in place as the stalwart of conservatism, and then for <coughs> Obamacare, he sort of threw everybody a curveball. The question that uh, uh, Dr. Dew asked is, you mentioned Justice Kennedy. Can you speak also about Justice Roberts? Yes. Um, up until last week, I would have told you that I thought Justice Roberts would clearly vote for the constitutionality of state marriage amendments. Uh, however, my confidence has been shaken in Justice Roberts and Justice Alito because in, in Alabama, where this, what we were just talking about occurred, the uh, state attorney general asked the Supreme Court to stay the, the issuance of that judgment by the district judge. And the Supreme Court, by a vote, I think, of seven to two, would not stay the impact of that federal district court ruling. And so the only two justices that voted for the stay were um, Scalia. Scalia and um, Thomas. Yeah. And so Roberts and Alito were missing from that. And it's, it's, uh, it does not speak well about what could come from the Supreme Court in June. Next question. Yes. If it develops as you fear it might, what in the long term, because obviously that's going to require a long term adjustment of strategy and tactics, do you see as the best hope for people of faith and not just Christianity? Let me repeat the question so it'll be recorded. He's asking that if the decisions come down in the summer as you fear they may, what, how will that affect our strategy in the long term? Well, it will change a lot. Um, I, I would point out to you the success that the pro-life movement is beginning to have 40 years post Roe versus Wade. We now have a majority of Americans in the country who are pro-life. And that's, that's happened because the pro-life movement has changed their thinking about unborn babies. And that's what we will have to do in the marriage movement. We will have to change the thinking of the culture to appreciate marriage and the good things that it brings, not just to the people who are involved in a marriage, but to society in general. That's why we have tax laws and other laws that, that favor marriage, because we realized from the very beginning of our country that marriages brought good things to society. They bring children, which produce the workforce, and that increases the economy. Um, marriages tie husbands and wives together into their children, so they can't easily separate. You don't have a lot of illegitimate children uh, when you promote marriage. Now, what we've done over the last 50 years is we haven't promoted marriage through our social programs, and we're showing the effects of it now. We do have a lot of illegitimate children because we promoted illegitimacy. So as a society, as a church, we are going to have to train people train our young people about the benefits of marriage. And that's hard to do when you have a divorce rate in the church that looks just like the rest of society. So when we start to reflect the principles of God in our own families, in our own homes, and teach our children, I think the marriage culture will turn around in our country.